Again, we're in the midst of our series, You Can Believe Too. You Can Believe Too. And we're going to note a couple of things today, and I hope there'll be an encouragement and a help. But we're going to begin reading in chapter 1 of the book of Matthew, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, a son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. You know, we mentioned last week as we kicked off this series that, you know, we're kind of, we're entering the Christmas season. And although many are trying to remove Christ from Christmas, the truth is that more than ever, more than at any other time of the year, he's being noticed. And often the question arises, at least it seems more now than ever, did Jesus really exist? Is the Bible account really accurate? And we noted a, a Pew Research survey uh, that pointed out that U.S. adults who say they believe the historical accuracy of the Christmas story is on the decline. The four elements that this particular study cited that was found in Scripture are these. They cited and based it on, do you believe that Jesus was born to a virgin, that the wise men were guided by a star and brought gifts for baby Jesus, that Jesus' birth was heralded by an angel of the Lord, and finally... Do you believe that Jesus was laid in a manger as an infant? The percentage of Christians who believe in all four of these elements of the Christmas story have dipped from 81% in 2014 to 76% today. Now again, I mentioned it last week, and I'm still baffled by this, Christians. Well, obviously their definition of Christian is different than ours. I mean, you've got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved, my friend. So I got a hard time believing that you believe in a Jesus. If you believe in a Jesus that wasn't supernaturally birthed and born, then you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. But nonetheless, as we look over the contour of America, we recognize that even those that profess Christianity are finding themselves questioning the authenticity, the historicity of the birth of Jesus Christ. Overall, including Christians and non-Christians, 57% of Americans now believe in all four of these elements of the Christmas story. That's down from 65% in 2014. So in 2014, 65% of all Americans, saved, unsaved, doesn't matter who they are, 65% of them said, we believe in those four elements of the Christmas story. But just four years later, it's down to 
Well, I don't know about you, but that's an alarming increase in skepticism. And unfortunately, if I can be quite frank, it seems to me that in many cases even, believers themselves can find themselves starting to question the very things that they believed at one point simply because the mass or the majority are starting to question. And as a result of that, the Bible tells us that we need to be very careful that we don't allow their philosophies to infect our heart and therefore we must take action. And over in the book of Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, the Bible says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Well, last week we noted how the Word of God proves Christ's existence. We pointed out a couple of things about the Bible that would reinforce that truth. One, we talked about the Bible's pedigree. We said it was a book that was written over the course of 1,600 years. It utilized three different languages over, and over 40 different men to pen the Bible. And yet, it is evident that there is only one author. We took some time to address this aspect of pedigree. Then we moved on to its prophecies. We said if you take the Bible and you look at the prophecies, we're going to see that... The, uh, we. we well, actually, last week alone, we looked at a number of prophecies that were shared 500 to 1,000 years before Jesus Christ's birth. And we noted that each of them was fulfilled. And we said that there were upwards of 2,500 prophecies, 2,000 of them already fulfilled, and that God has never messed up yet. And the truth is, is that His Word can be proven true by the fact of the prophecies that he shares and their fulfillment of them. We said about its preservation. We noted how the Bible, despite every attempt to destroy it, still tops the bestseller list and is reliable even today. Boy, I mean to tell you, the Word of God itself proves Christ's existence. But today I want to consider another aspect, another area. I want to talk about the writers that prove the literal existence of Christ. I'm not talking about the writers of the Bible. I'm talking about secular writers who mention Christ in their, their ancient writings. I want to look at the fact that although we know we have a word that is sure and we know that we can trust and depend on it and it is our most important foundational truth and that it itself is really all we really need to prove Christ's existence, it's still nice to have others' aspects corroborate the story, if you will. And so we're going to go back and look at some of the ancient writers and their writings. Just take very small tidbits of it. These are not believers, mind you. These are secular historians and critics. And we're going to just look at a couple of them today and see how they describe Christians early on, Christ himself, and note that there's something to do with this Jesus, that Christ himself literally existed, that he's not the figment of an imagination, he's not made up in the minds of believers, that he actually existed in those days. And we're going to take just a few moments and consider that today. And um, I think it'll be helpful and an encouragement to each of us. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer today. Father, we thank you for this time we have together. And Lord, in this next few moments, this short time that we do have, may it, Father, it all culminate into glorifying you, bringing you glory. You are so worthy of our praise. We thank you for your salvation and we are so thankful for the relationship that we can have 
with you, our creator, as a result of Jesus Christ, his precious shed blood. Thank you so much for just allowing us to be in the body of Christ and to have him in dwelling us, living in us. And we thank you for that home in heaven one day. But Lord, there may be those that are with us that don't have that confidence, that may have even doubted or questioned the authenticity of the Bible or the reality of Jesus Christ. Or may your Holy Spirit drive home even these simple truths today. May they come to a realization that Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is not only real, but he is God, manifest in flesh. That he alone can forgive and save. And may they believe in him today before they leave. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I think about, first of all, some evidence from a fellow by the name of Tacitus. Tacitus. Publius Cornelius Tacitus was a senator, and he was a historian of the Roman Empire. And he had two major works, basically, that have continued on and have survived. And the two major works are the Annals and the Histories. And they basically examine the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, Claudius, Nero, and some others along the way. But these two works span the history of the Roman Empire from the death of Augustus in A.D. 14 to the years of the first Jewish Roman War in A.D. 70. And so from 14 to 70, he covers that period of time historically. In A.D. 64, if you study history, you'll find that the city of Rome was destroyed by fire. That fire, of course, was blamed on the believers, the Christians. Emperor Nero, he decided that the best way out of this mess was to, and honestly, there's evidence to prove that he did it himself. But nonetheless, the fact is, is that he decided, well, the way out of this is to blame someone else. And who else or better to blame than the Christian, a hated group, a hated sect. And so he blamed the Christians for the tragedy. And reporting on Emperor Nero's decision to blame the Christians for the fire, Tacitus writes these words. He claims, he says these words. He says, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Now again, we're talking about a secular historian writing about just historically, writing historically, and when he talks about this fire that took place in Rome that was blamed on the Christians, he writes, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations. He goes on to talk about called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin. That's interesting, isn't it? So what can we learn from this ancient writer? Rather unsympathetic writer, by the way. Again, he's not professing Christ. But he makes reference to Jesus and he makes reference to early Christians. What can we learn then? Well, Tacitus reports Christians derived their name from a historical person called Christus. Now again, that is Latin for Christ. He says that that, that, that to have suffered the extreme penalty, this Jesus Christ, if you will, suffered the extreme penalty, which obviously must be referring to the Roman method of crucifixion. It would seem that way to me. This is said, according to Tacitus, to have occurred during the reign of Tiberius. 
and by the sentence of one named Pontius Pilate. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we read in the book of Luke chapter 3, verse 1, Now in the fifth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. And he goes on. But the point being is, is that the setting of Christ there before these magistrates is written even in our book, the Bible, the Word of God. And now we have collaborating the story, we have a man by the name of Tacitus that is writing. Again, notice statement. It's interesting. He makes the statement, a most mischievous superstition. I wonder what that mischievous superstition was he's referring to. I wonder what he's really talking to. He says that it not only arose in Judea only, but also in Rome. I wonder if that superstition could possibly be referring to none other than the fact that Christ rose from the dead. I believe that's what it must be referring to. That's a mischievous superstition if you're a Roman. Because that's a problem. Because the Roman emperor is to be the God, not a Jesus, not a man, not God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28, verse 11 through 15. Turn there if you would, please. Notice what it says. Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. We know that the leadership of that day was very concerned about the fact that Christ had spoken or said he would rise again. They wanted to go to, they would go to any length to ensure that that superstition would not escape or that it wouldn't be, you know, continually spoken of. So here's what happens. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city. They had set a watch on the tomb, mind you. And they showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. They had placed these soldiers at the tomb. They had told them to guard that tomb to ensure that the disciples did not steal the body of Jesus, to perpetuate a mischievous, a mischievous superstition, mind you. But in this case, Jesus did rise again. And when they were confronted and they came forward to the city, the chief priest said, man, listen, we got a real problem here. Verse 13, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. They would have lost their lives for not fulfilling their duty. But these priests say, these chief priests say, we will care for you. We will ensure that you are not killed. Just say these things. So they took the money, a bribe, and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. Christianity at the time was growing rapidly. And of course, it was based on the worship of a man, God-man, Jesus Christ. A man who had been crucified, a man who had been considered a criminal. So it really shouldn't surprise us that Tacitus would refer to his resurrection as a most mischievous superstition. I find it interesting. I think we have some evidence of Jesus Christ's historicity, the, the reality of Christ from the writings of Tacitus. Not only that, I think about evidence from Pliny the Younger. He lived between 61 A.D. and 112 A.D. He was a lawyer, an author, a magistrate of ancient Rome. Pliny wrote hundreds of letters, and 
He wrote those letters that still survive today. Matter of fact, you can read some of them even now. And they're regarded as a historical source for that period of time. Some of those letters address reigning emperors at the time, or in this case, even notable historians like Tacitus. Pliny served as an imperial magistrate under Trajan, and he was considered an honest and a moderate man. He was consistent in his pursuit of suspected Christian members, according to Roman law. This was not a believer. He was a friend to Tacitus, the historian, of course, and uh, they were, uh, you know, they knew one another. Now, an important source of evidence about Jesus in early Christianity can be found in these letters that Pliny the Younger writes to Emperor Trajan. Pliny's concerned because Christianity itself is growing. He is the governor of Bithynia at this point. It's in Asia Minor. Mi- Minor? Minor. How about say that instead? Asia Minor. <laughs> I'm getting like a little lax with the tongue there. there. But in one of his letters that dated in AD 112, he asked Trajan's advice how to deal with the conduct, uh, how to legally proceed in addressing and dealing with these Christians that are being accused of Christianity. Because it was, a, it was a breaking the law to be a Christian. So Pliny, he, he consults the emperor. And Basically, at one point in his letter, he relates some information that he learned about the Christians. And here's what Pliny says about these believers. As he's writing now to Trajan, and he's asking his advice how to deal with these believers, he says, now let me describe what they are and who they are. He says, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. When they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate, and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. I don't know about you, but that's pretty, that's pretty descriptive of what a believer was back there, way back in you know, 100 A.D. or after the death of Christ. Uh, you know, that's kind of something. You think about that now. I mean, the, the scriptures are being fulfilled and completed in, in, uh, in 90, 90 A.D. We're looking at 90 A.D. with John over there on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation. And so we have, we have Pliny writing not long after the completion of Revelation. And he's saying these things about Christians. Now, the passage provides us, I believe, with a a number of interesting insights to their beliefs, the practices of early Christianity. One, we see that Christians regularly meet on a certain fixed day for worship. That's that's kind of how we do it today, isn't it? I mean, you say, well, we meet on Wednesdays too. Yeah, well, if you really want to get down to it, they would early on in the early church, right after the the, the resurrection of Christ and the inception of the... uh, uh, of the Spirit coming down, the, the, you know, the Holy Ghost, the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us they met daily. So they did that as well. But we know that there's a specific day that Christians are required or expected to meet. Well, you say, well, how do you know that? Acts 12, 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him. 
What we see here is it's on the first day of the week. And it's interesting that Pliny notes that these Christians met on a particular day. They had a habit of meeting on a certain fixed day. I find that interesting. Not only that, but he notes that their worship was directed to a person, Christ. That often, that, that would demonstrate to me that they believed that he was divine. As a matter of fact, he states that hymns, and, uh, hymns were sung to Christ as to a God, he says. As to a God. Now, he's not a Christian, so he wouldn't lump Christ. He wouldn't say Christ is God. What he would say is he, they worshipped him as though he was a God. Of course, that makes sense. Again, it seems to indicate that the worshipers pointed their praise to a historical person who lived on the earth and who was considered God, a man to the world, Emmanuel to us. I think that's interesting. I think it's very, 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 very powerful. Again, not a Christian, just a historian. Evidence from Josephus. He's one of the more popular secular historians that, that have written about this time period. He lived between 37 A.D. and 100 A.D. So he was around during the time when the apostles were spreading the gospel and were making a tremendous impact in Asia Minor. Churches were springing up everywhere in his lifetime. Of course, the death of Christ probably somewhere around the time of his birth. And then, of course, we see the apostle Paul, many of his writings, uh, early 60 A.D.'s. So this, this man is in his 20s by the time the word of God is being shared and, and, and carried throughout Asia Minor, where the letters are being written, I should say, the epistles. The gospel, of course, has already arrived, but the epistles are being written now. Paul is following up with the churches. Probably the most remarkable to, uh, of, of um, references to Jesus outside of the Bible can be found in the writings of Josephus. Again, he was a first century Jewish historian. In other words, on two occasions in his what's called Jewish antiquities that he mentions Christ or Jesus. One of those references describes the hatred of a man named James by the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Jewish Sanhedrin hated a man by the name of James. This James, according to Josephus, mind you, was, quote, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. Isn't that interesting? Now, again, that lines up perfectly with the Word of God. Paul, when speaking to the Galatians, made the statement in chapter 1, verse 19, But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. And so we have here Josephus, a secular historian, recognizing this James, the hated one, as being the brother of none other than Jesus. That's pretty good. So Jesus did literally exist then. Someone says, well, did Jesus actually exist? Did he really live on? Yeah, obviously. Again, there have been some that have questioned portions of Josephus' writings. They've questioned whether or not he himself wrote them. Again, some believe that later on in history that people mixed up or messed up some of his writings. Not the portion we just read. There's no question about that one. No one seems to indicate whether that they believe in any way that that was tampered with. But there is another portion that they do believe was tampered with slightly. It's called the Testimonium Flavinum. Flavienum. 
There it is. Whew. All those Italian-type words or whatever they call that. I, I don't know what, you know, whatever. The relevant portion. Here's it is. Let me, let me read it. Here's where they say some believe that this was messed with. So we're going we're gonna to take that into consideration too. It says, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. If indeed one ought to call him a man. For he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. We're going to see that's a problem. Because what did he call him earlier? So-called Christ. So some believe that this was tampered with. And I don't, I, I don't, I'm not going to say it wasn't. Could very well have been. Hold on though. He goes on to say, when Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. Now, again, a number of scholars believe somehow that potentially, possibly, that was messed with. And I don't blame them. I I would be concerned about that too, based on what I just read. This was a secular historian. This was not a believer, right? Now, why do they think that? Well, again, not being a Christian, it's kind of difficult to believe that, that he would have made some of the statements. For instance, the claim that Jesus was a wise man seems authentic to me. A wise man, that, that I can handle. Um, but the phrase, if indeed one ought to call him a man, is suspect. See, to me, that's kind of, did he really say that? I don't know. Some have found it difficult to believe that he would also assert that Jesus was the Christ. We talked about that already. When earlier he said so-called Christ. And finally, the claim that on the third day Jesus appeared to his disciples restored to life implies that Jesus is more than human. That's a statement that's hard to swallow coming from a non-believer again. That'd be kind of hard. Again, I'm trying to be honest and and sincere. I, I still believe there's things within that passage that help to prove once again that Jesus literally existed, that he's authentic, that he's actually lived during those times. But if you remove even those things, if you take away some of the objections, some of the concerns, there's still some things that we see. First of all, we read that he was a wise man who performed surprising feats. Now that to me already says something about this man, Jesus. In John chapter 21, verse 25, the Bible says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, of, uh, 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 written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Although he was crucified under Pilate, his followers continued their discipleship of the Lord Jesus. They were known as Christians. He makes it clear there as well. It's something to me, I, I, th- I find that interesting because in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians. and uh, were The fir- disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So my point being is, although you can discard some of what's said and maybe say that someone came along and inserted some things and tried to make, it look more, make Christ look more real than, and than even Josephus did, there's still statements that I believe Josephus made that they build upon. And those statements teach us something about the, the reality and the authenticity of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but that his believers continued long after his death and his so-called, uh, if we would say, his, his resurrection and that they were called Christians. That's important. That's important. We could take the time to look at the Babylonian Talmud. And again, we're dealing with some writings uh, uh, a Jewish collection of writings. And I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because of the time we have, but, 
Let me just say that in that particular writing, it says on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Forty days before the execution took place, a herald cried, he's going forth to be stoned because he was, he was practiced, because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Someone says, that sounds nothing like Christ at all. Hold on a second. When you really look at it, first of all, Yeshu, Yeshu is Yeshua, which is basically a Hebrew word for who? Jesus. Not only that, you say, well, I don't get it, though. In the passage, it says, it goes on to say that, that uh, let, me, let me read it again. Forty days before the execution took place, a herald cried, he's going forth to be stoned. Well, he, he didn't get stoned. He got crucified. I, I know. But think about how Jews dealt with those that were, were uh, sinners. In many cases, they stoned them. Could it possibly be that the Jewish leadership and others had planned on had decided, we're going to stone this guy. We're going to kill him. I don't think that's so far, I don't think that's crazy. I think that could certainly have been the case. I think it is interesting, however, that this particular one, as he says here, he was going to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Well, that sounds a lot like the Jesus that we know, at least from the perspective of someone that's an unbeliever. They wouldn't look at Jesus as being a, a wonderful God teacher, uh, somebody sharing truth, they would say he's, he's practicing and he's promoting apostasy, leading people astray. There are so many things here, once again, that I think point to Christ and that could give us some insights. But because of time, let's move on. Let me give you another one. A fellow by the name of Lucian, he lived between 125 and 180. Lucian of Samosoda, <laughs> I'm telling you, some of these names are rough for me. I'm sorry. He was a second century Greek artist, or actually wasn't even an artist. He wasn't an artist, I'm sorry. He, he, he was a comedian, if you will. He was a comedian. Uh, they didn't call him comedians in those days. We call him comedians today. But in one of his works, he wrote of the early Christians, he made these statements. Remember, he's a comedian, so he's going to be making fun of them. He says, the Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account, was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. I don't know about you, but that's, that's something. I mean, he, he's not saying things trying to support Christianity. I mean, this, this guy has, no, he has he's no, no skin in the game, so to speak. And although Lucian is making fun of the early Christians, he does make some significant comments that really do reinforce the reality of Christ. He says that Christians worshipped a man who introduced their novel rites. And although... This man's followers clearly thought quite highly of him. He had angered enough people that his teachings um, brought crucifixion in his life. And that sounds like Jesus to me. I don't know about you. And although Lucian doesn't really mention his name, it's clear that he's referring to none other than Jesus Christ in the passage. It's pretty obvious based on all the rest of the facts in that passage. What did Jesus teach that prompted such anger and wrath? Well, according to Lucian, he taught all men that all men are brothers from the moment of their conversion. Sounds like Christianity. 
That would seem, I think, rather harmless statement overall. I mean, why would that bring death to him? Well, that wasn't all there was. He goes on to describe that conversion demanded denying the Greek gods. Well, instead they were to worship, well, who we believe is Jesus here. And they were to live according to his teachings. Now that would push the wrong buttons in that day. That wouldn't be good. When you got saved and you denied the Greek gods, when you got saved and you said, we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to do it his way, not your way, uh-uh, that wasn't getting it. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And without controversy, 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up to glory. When we draw this all to conclusion, when we summarize all these simple facts, we learn some things about Jesus from these ancient non-Christian sources. Both Jesus and Lucian indicate that Jesus was regarded as wise. Number two, Pliny and if we took the time to really go through the Talmud a little bit more, and Lucian implied that he was a powerful and revered teacher. We've learned, number three, that Josephus indicated he performed miraculous feats. Number four, Tacitus, Josephus, and Lucian all mentioned that he was crucified. Tacitus and Josephus say that this account uh, occurred under Pontius Pilate, and that Talmud declares it happened the, the Talmud itself declares it happened on the eve of the Passover. We read that. Number five, there are possible references to the Christian belief in Jesus' resurrection in both Tacitus and Josephus. We noted that. Number six, Josephus records that Jesus' followers believed he was the Christ or the Messiah. And number seven, Pliny and Lucian indicate that Christians worship Jesus as God. Well, those are some pretty important facts to think about when you consider they're being written by someone other than a believer. These are secular historians, and in one case a comedian even, writing about Christ and his followers. But when it's all said and done, as we mentioned last week, there's still no better source than the Word of God. Matter of fact, in John 5, 39, the Bible says, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and there are they that testify of me. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, as we prepare to close. We think about the literal existence of Christ. We have the Word of God, yes, but again, we have corroborating the story of the Bible. We have these ancient historians, these writers. That Christ, the man, lived in that day. And if someone named Jesus lived in that day, and his story has prevailed to this day, I don't know about you, but considering all the lives and the blood that's been shed through the years, there's something to this man, Jesus. And you can say all day long, well, I just, I'm just not convinced that he's God. That's one thing. I, I get that. 
But you can't deny that he literally existed. It seems to me very clear that not only from the word of God, but also from secular historians, that a man named Jesus literally lived in that day. And there were people that followed him in that day. And those that ultimately even gave their lives for that man in those days, even through to this day. Now that's pretty strong proof that Jesus Christ is more than a mere man. That's pretty strong proof that there's something to Jesus Christ. The literal existence of a man and ultimately God-man. I think it's pretty clear. Look in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, verse 1 through 7. Excuse me, 2, verses 1 through 7. I believe that we can look at the Bible now and say to ourselves, not only is this book true, but also we have corroborating evidence of its authenticity. When we look at this book, it says, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus Would you question his reality? Would you question that Caesar Augustus lived in those days? Oh, even the writings that we read today mention him. But they also mention Jesus. That all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary's espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Not only does the Bible tell us about Jesus, not only does it refer to him as being God in flesh, But I do believe that the corroborating evidence of those ancient writers proves to us again that he existed, that this birth took place. Because that birth took place, Jesus, I believe, with all my heart, is who he claims to be, who he said he was. And when the Bible talks about him in Isaiah and prophesies his coming, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did, we did esteem him, stricken, of, uh, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. May I say to you today that Jesus Christ is, as he claimed, the only way, the truth, and the life. You are a sinner today, and so am I. But thank God we have Jesus who is perfect and sinless. And he died in our stead, and he took our place on Calvary. He paid for our sin so that we don't have to. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. You've got to believe on him. You've got to put your faith in Christ. You've got to trust him and him alone. You say, man, I don't know if I can do that. He lived. He existed, just like the Bible says. He literally was there during the reign of Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. The question is, was he God in flesh? Because if he is, you better kneel. You better surrender. You better present yourself to him today. You better understand that if you're wrong about Jesus, you'll be wrong about eternity. Thank God for his word and thank God for the corroborating evidence that we have in the ancient writers. 
Thank God that we can believe in Jesus today and we can be saved. It is not going to be your church attendance. It won't be your good effort or works. It will not be what you do to be good, righteous. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Him. You simply must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you trust Christ today? Will you say, I believe that you are who you claim to be. Jesus, God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And I'm trusting you to forgive me and save me and to come into my life. To wash my sin away. Because you're my only hope. Well, I want to encourage you as we draw closer to this Christmas day, as we remember the birth of Christ, to realize that birth isn't just a mere man. The birth of Jesus is God-man coming to earth to take our place and to pay for our sin and to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's you and I, all of us today, need Christ. If you've not trusted him, won't you do that today? Won't you just admit that he is who he claims to be, that Jesus is God in flesh, that he is the savior of the world, that only he can wash your sin away. Won't you do that today? Won't you settle your salvation so that one day when you do close your eyes in death, you needn't fear? You can with confidence face it knowing that he will be there for you and that you'll meet him face to face on the other side. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this.